Welcome to the Election Ride Home for Friday, July 26, 2019. I'm your host, Chris Higgins. Today, an exploration of the Americans Overseas vote, a climate forum is actually happening, what happens if you donate too much to a campaign, and debate bingo is here. Here's what you missed today from the campaign trail. Today, our top story is a deep dive on a topic many Americans don't even know is a thing. And that's how American citizens living outside the U.S. actually vote and otherwise participate in the election process. This applies to members of the military serving overseas, students studying abroad, people working abroad, and people who simply moved to another country and chose to retain their U.S. citizenship. First up, some terminology. Folks who move abroad but retain their citizenship are called expats. That is short for expatriate, which may sound unpatriotic, but in fact comes from the Latin expatria, meaning out of native country. Okay, so expat is the typical term, though you will also hear this constituency referred to as Americans abroad within the political system. All right, so the first big question we have to address is how exactly do these people vote? They don't like fly back and head to a local polling place, though in many cases they technically could. It just doesn't work great for the millions of expats who are out there, including in places like, oh, say, Antarctica. So voting from abroad on the technical side is pretty simple. After you move to your new country, you fill out a registration form called the Federal Postcard Application. This, plus a few more steps depending on which state you last resided in, set you up for getting an absentee ballot by mail or in some cases online. Then you just fill in the absentee ballot and return it either by mail or online or even by fax, depending on how technologically advanced your particular state happens to be. Then you repeat this process every year. Now, here's something you may not know. Democrats abroad are their own constituency for the Democratic primary, which is part of why we are talking about this today. This group votes on Super Tuesday next year, and they will award a total of 17 delegates based on that international vote. That's the same number as Wyoming, and just one less than Alaska and North Dakota. So we're not talking about a huge number, but it is a real constituency. In fact, it's not that far off from Vermont, which has 23 delegates and also votes on Super Tuesday. Because of this, you might think that primary candidates are actively trying to get support from expat voters. But to be frank, they are not doing a great job. This came to my attention when listener Ron Steenblick wrote in to get the ball rolling. Steenblick was looking for something pretty simple. He wanted to sign up for email updates from some of the primary candidates. But when he went to their websites, they required him to put in a zip code. Now again, the U.S.-centric audience may not know this, but zip code is a U.S.-only thing. Now, I could go into a tangent on the zone improvement plan, and it's taken everything I have not to dive into that, but the point is that most of those forms ask for your name, email address, and zip code. Now, Steenblick, who currently lives in France and is a registered voter, doesn't have a zip code, but it is a required field. So how is he, a registered voter who wants to vote for people, supposed to get email updates from the candidates? Well, I looked into this. I visited every single major Democratic primary candidate's website, and I looked at what they were doing around email lists and donations and stuff like that. What I found was, yeah, Steenblick is right. The vast majority of these candidates are requiring a piece of data, the zip code, that may not exist and is certainly not necessary in order to, you know, send an email. The reason the campaigns want the zip code is presumably so they can target their emails to certain parts of the U.S. 
However, in the world of web development, it's a best practice to ask for zip or postal code, which allows you to enter the code from whatever country you happen to live in. That would be the proper way to address this situation, and it would allow candidates to target specific emails to expats. That is a good thing, and they can't do it right now. So anyway, this issue doesn't just apply to getting email updates. It's also a problem if you're trying to host, oh, let's say, a debate watch party. So, for instance, if you visit Joe Biden's website, you can look up events like watch parties. So for kicks, I typed in France and got no results. So the form encouraged me to go ahead and make a new event. Okay, so I started, and when I entered the street address for the Moulin Rouge, I got the error, quote, please enter an address in the U.S. or its territories or commonwealths, end quote. Interesting. So our sample expat, an American voter, Mr. Steenblick, is not allowed to host a watch party, at least on one candidate's website. He also can't sign up for email. And most form fields that ask for a phone number are explicitly requiring a U.S.-based number in the 10-digit format and cannot handle international numbers. By the way, there are a few exceptions to that. I will get there in a moment. But, you know, how exactly is an American in Paris supposed to engage with a candidate's campaign? Well, it is possible to donate money. The ActBlue donation system, which is used by almost all the candidates, actually does have a country drop-down list, and although their postal code field is labeled zip code, it does accept other kinds of postal codes. So, yeah, they'll take your money, but you can't do much else. Earlier this week, during the research process, I reached out to every single major Democratic primary candidate on my list using their press email accounts and asking for a simple comment on this situation. My specific ask was around the ability for American voters living overseas to sign up for email updates without providing a zip code. And I also mentioned the watch party thing since that's obviously coming up soon. And many of them got back right away saying they were on top of it and would get a quote back to me by my Friday morning deadline, and that's great. Well, Friday morning came and went, and guess how many candidates actually responded? Just one. Representative Tim Ryan's campaign gave me this response, quote, The campaign is in the process of fixing the website to allow American voters who are living abroad to sign up for email updates. Congressman Ryan is dedicated to serving all Americans, including those that are living overseas. End quote. So, big ups to Ryan for actually following through. Now, why didn't I get similar responses from the other two dozen candidates? I don't know. I'll update you if I get responses after deadline, which is certainly still possible. Now, I mentioned earlier that a few candidates did deal with international phone numbers correctly. Both Seth Moulton and Joe Sestak appear to be using a system called Fast Action, which does take non-U.S. phone numbers. Good job there, except the Fast Action forms still require a U.S. zip code to sign up for email. Well, we got close. One more interesting note. I did see one example of a candidate asking for a postal code, and that was on Mayor Pete Buttigieg's Host a Debate Watch Party page. I got this link only because it was forwarded to me via email from an expat. However, when you fill in anything that really is a postal code and not a zip code, the form does not let you proceed. I tried using codes from South Africa and England, and no luck there. So, there are still cases where it may look like the site includes international audiences, but then in practice, it actually does not. So, look, the reason I'm devoting time to this is that I am truly concerned with access to voting and access to candidate information. I did a story a few weeks back on the accessibility of candidates' websites to people with disabilities, and since then I actually have seen some changes. And by the way, I'm not the only person who's talking about that issue, so it's not like I alone drove that action. But look, the ability to sign up for email from a candidate is not in the same league as being able to read their website at all. And Steenblick wanted to make sure I pointed that out. 
I agree, and this is not the end of the world, but it is a real blocker for a group of American voters actually trying to engage with the primary candidates. With some minor effort, these candidates could reach a group that they're basically ignoring right now, and that would probably help them in the primary. One final statistic I want to leave you with. This comes from a Department of Defense study released on September 12, 2018. Reading here from the very first paragraph, quote, There were 3 million U.S. citizens of voting age living abroad in 2016 who cast approximately 208,000 ballots. The overseas voter turnout of approximately 7% compares to a domestic turnout of 72%, end quote. So, you know, maybe we can reach the other 2.8 million voters if we try just a little harder. And finally, big thanks to Ron Steenblick, who can be found on Twitter, at Ron Steenblick. There's a link to his Twitter account in the show notes, and he is currently my favorite expat listener. And yeah, this is a contest for my affection, so give it your best shot. The Election Ride Home is brought to you by Skillshare. Skillshare is an online learning community with thousands of classes covering all kinds of skills. We're talking everything from business to graphic design to coffee brewing, you name it. So whether you've got a project you just need some knowledge to get through or you're challenging yourself to learn a new skill, Skillshare has classes for you. Now today I want to talk about a Skillshare class about coffee. Now look, I live in a big coffee town and I don't know anything about how to brew coffee the right way. But all my friends do. They've got their techniques and their pour overs and their aerated gadgets and I just don't know what that is. Well, imagine my delight in finding the class From Plant to Cup, Brew an Amazing Cup of Coffee on Skillshare. It's an hour of going super deep on coffee, everything from bean selection to grinding to, you know, brewing a cup. This is really good stuff. And best of all, if you want to skip to a certain section, I particularly enjoyed the one labeled Coffee Theory. You just jump in and jump out. So join the millions of students already learning on Skillshare today with a special offer just for you. Get two free months. That is correct. Skillshare is offering Election Ride Home listeners two months of unlimited access to thousands of classes for free. To sign up, go to Skillshare.com slash PRH. Again, that is Skillshare.com slash PRH to start your two free months today. The Election Ride Home is sponsored by a great podcast called The Meb Faber Show. The Wall Street Journal named it one of the top five investing podcasts you should not miss. If you're looking to learn from the brightest minds in finance or simply want to know more about investing in a casual, fun interview format, this show is a must listen. It's hosted by Meb Faber, who is CEO of Cambria Investments and an award-winning ETF manager. The goal of his show is to help you grow and preserve your wealth by giving you new investing insights and ideas. So find and subscribe to The Meb Faber Show wherever you get your podcasts. That's Meb. M-E-B, Faber, F-A-B-E-R. You don't want to miss it. And next up today, remember that whole climate change debate kerfuffle and how the DNC suggested that a debate maybe wasn't the best format per se, but maybe, you know, like a town hall or a candidate forum, kind of like the one Planned Parenthood did, like maybe that would be good. Well, good news. A candidate forum on climate change has just picked up some major media attention. It will be held September 19th and 20th, that's a Thursday and Friday, and is co-sponsored by MSNBC, Georgetown Politics, and Our Daily Planet. The event, called Climate Forum 2020, will be moderated by MSNBC's anchors Chris Hayes and Ali Velshi. It's billed as, quote, a conversation between presidential candidates and young voters on the issue of climate change, end quote. So here's the thing. This event was actually announced way back in June, but yesterday it picked up a ton of steam when MSNBC came on board. 
The event will happen at Georgetown University, and it'll be streamed live on NBC News Now, and it will also air on both nights on MSNBC's show All In with Chris Hayes, which airs at 8 p.m. Eastern. Now, here's another interesting angle. This forum is not a Democrats-only affair. According to the Georgetown press release, quote, All declared 2020 presidential candidates from both political parties have been invited to participate in the town hall-style forum at Georgetown University, end quote. So this is a very positive development, and it will be fascinating to see what this event looks like coming precisely one week after the DNC September debates. In other words, it's very likely that lower polling candidates who won't make the debates will stick around in the race precisely for events like this. Oh, and breaking news update, as I was heading into the recording booth, I saw that CNN is also hosting a climate-focused forum on September 4th in New York. More details on that when I have them. Okay, now another listener question. Again, this one came in through a private channel, so I'm not going to mention the questioner's name, but here is the question. Quote, I have a campaign contribution question. I know the max contribution for the primary for each candidate is $2,800, and a Google search told me that if you buy any t-shirts or swag, that counts towards the $2,800, but are there any exceptions to that? My t-shirt purchase is not in my ActBlue contribution history for a candidate, and at one point I got a fundraising email asking if I could max out with a contribution of X dollars, but that number assumed the t-shirt was not included, so I'm confused. Also, what happens if you accidentally give over the limit? Are the campaigns keeping track and returning excess? End quote. Okay, so there are multiple questions here. First up, let's address the $2,800 thing, just so everybody is clear. According to federal law, each individual may donate up to $2,800 to each candidate in each election. So what that means in practice for the race right now is that you can give $2,800 to a primary candidate because the primary is its own election. And then, if that candidate wins and makes it into the general election, you can give another $2,800 to the same candidate again, but this time it is for the general election. One election equals one contribution limit. And by the way, some people are going ahead and pre-giving both amounts right now, but this creates some challenges for the bookkeepers, so in some cases, those general election donations are simply being returned by the campaigns. That's governed on a campaign-by-campaign basis, and you can handle it however you want. Okay, so the first question is basically, are there any exceptions to the overall $2,800 limit? Like, is a t-shirt the same as cash? Well, short answer, merchandise, like t-shirts, is treated exactly the same as a cash donation if you buy the merch from the actual campaign. There are a lot of bootlegs out there right now, so in some cases I've seen people buy stuff off of online ads that is not actually official campaign merchandise, and therefore technically is not counted because the money didn't go to the campaign. But if you bought the thing from the campaign's actual website or in person at an event, it should be counted and it probably will be counted eventually. It's mainly a matter of bookkeeping because the merch people don't necessarily talk to the donations people, or at least they don't do it quickly. Another question there is, are there any ways around this? And to be honest, no. Campaign finance law is super real and you don't want to go messing around. But a huge thing you can do is volunteer. That technically doesn't have anything to do with financial contributions, even though it does have massive value to the campaign. So for those who are super fired up about a given candidate, volunteering even at the most minimal level, like hosting a watch party or something like that, is another way to essentially help the campaign, but, you know, not break federal law. 
Now, technically, you could also give to a PAC, but A, you can't be sure that money will go to a particular candidate, which is kind of the whole point, and B, many candidates are not accepting PAC money anyway. And the last part there was about what happens if you accidentally give too much. Well, this is something that does happen a lot because lots of small contributions do eventually add up. And the FEC has detailed rules about that. I can sum it up by saying one of two things will happen and legally they're supposed to happen within 60 days of the over limit contribution arriving at the campaign. Note that this 60-day window thing might also account for why a recent contribution or a t-shirt purchase or whatever might not yet be on the books for you, or it could just be a legit mistake. I don't know. So, first, the campaign can return the contribution via cash or check that is accompanied by a notice in writing to you as the contributor. This is the common route and it happens all the time. Second, the campaign may, under certain circumstances, keep the money and redesignate it for the general election. Now, just like I mentioned before, if they don't make it to the general election, they do have to refund that money later, but this is a totally legit thing to do, assuming you follow the FEC's guidelines for doing it. And depending on whether your preferred candidate is holding on to these general election donations, this is a super practical way to keep people giving and handle the bookkeeping on the back end. Now, by the way, they are also supposed to notify you if and when this happens. It is called redesignation. So I hope that answers the question, and please do not violate campaign finance law intentionally because that's bad, but if you do go over by one t-shirt's worth of money, you're just going to get a check in the mail, and that will cost the campaign some amount of time and money, but it's not a huge deal. Last up today, Debate Bingo is here for July. Now, just like in June, I have made bingo cards for each night of the July debates. There's a link in the show notes to go download those. It is the top link, the first link in the notes, and they are PDFs with 10 randomized cards per night. Now, in case you're not a big show notes person, the place to go is just ridehome.info bingo. So the cards, if you didn't see them in June, have a lineup from left to right with photos and names of all the candidates in their proper order. Good way to keep track of who these people all are. There are also, you know, bingo squares with various things they might say or do. Yeah, mark a square when a thing happens, and maybe you'll win some kind of non-existent prize. That's, that's up to you. If you play along at home and you're somebody who does the whole Twitter thing, try out the hashtag ERHBingo that's also printed on the bottom of all the cards so we can check out how everybody is doing. Well, that is it for one more episode of The Election Ride Home. I have been your host, Chris Higgins. You can always find me on Twitter, at Chris Higgins. Well, a long week for me coming off of travel and being very thankful to be back in my own bed with my own Yarden. And big news on the Yarden front, the first Stargazer Lily of the season just bloomed yesterday. Of course, it then promptly fell over because I planted the bulb like one inch deep, but still, I guess, progress. There's also a giant, like, six-year-old lily tree version of a stargazer, and it's just about to pop with a whole bunch of blooms, so I am going to spend some quality time taking photos of those. If you're curious, you can check me out on Instagram at instablah, I-N-S-T-A-B-L-A-H. I apologize for the username. I just couldn't think of anything better, I guess. As always, thanks for listening, and I will talk to y'all on Monday. You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, activities, excursions, and more in one place to make your trip truly unforgettable. 
Viator has over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from. Everything from simple tours to extreme adventures and all the niche, interesting stuff in between. So you can plan something that everyone you're traveling with will enjoy. Real traveler reviews give the inside scoop from people who've already been on the experiences you're considering. So you can plan with confidence. Free cancellation helps you plan for the unexpected. And 24-7 customer support means you can travel worry-free. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator.